This is the Beyond 2% podcast, and I'm your host, Helen Femi Williams. And I'm your second host, Julie Verhage Greenberg. This podcast is brought to you by This Week in Fintech, which is the front page of global fintech news, fostering the largest fintech community through newsletters, thought leadership, and events. And of course, podcasting. And you might have listened to our other podcast, Hey Fintech Friends. Well, this podcast series is all about women, exploring everything from investing to motherhood to intersectionality and so much more. And we encourage you to give us feedback on the topics you think we should be discussing and asking in future panels. I think Julie and I and the wider This Week in Fintech team recognize that ensuring women are well represented in any industry is always going to be beneficial. Gender diversity has shown to spark better problem solving, superior performance, innovation, so much more. I could go on. You're right, Helen. And if we were specifically talking about fintech, the industry could benefit from more women at any level because women in general have not typically been in the spotlight as a target audience for financial products and services. They're an underserved customer segment with a massive unmet need. And beyond that, female founders and executives have personal experience understanding how to generate and align new ideas and solutions in this field. And that's why this podcast is called Beyond 2%. There is a world of tech-driven financial products and services that is yet to be discovered because of the lack of women leaders in this space. And through group discussions with leaders in these spaces, this is what we want to explore. And thank you to our sponsors, New York City Fintech Women. Fintech Women's mission is to connect, promote, empower women to advance their careers. They need help from everyone if we're going to make a real change, encouraging male allies to become members and come to our events. Membership is free and you can sign up at nycfintechwomen.com and follow them on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. A true fintech pioneer, Shamir Karkal is chief strategy officer of Sela, a fintech software platform that provides banking infrastructure as a service. He co-founded Sela in 2018 with the goal of empowering financial innovation and supporting entrepreneurs who want to build a new financial world. In 2009, he co-founded Simple, the first bank of its kind in the U.S. In doing so, he played a crucial part in building the infrastructure that would pave the way for online banking. After BBVA had acquired Simple, he headed the open banking platform at BBVA. Shamir studied physics and computer science at Bangalore University and is a graduate of Carnegie Mellon's Tepper School of Business. He lives in Portland, Oregon. Also on this episode, we have Nick. Nick has spent the last decade working in fintech and microfinance. He currently writes This Week in Fintech, a global digest of financial technology, news, and manages the FinTech Fund, an early stage venture capital fund. He previously led business development and strategy for Google Pay and Google Finance, led strategy at Petal and partnerships at Funding Circles. He writes on FinTech at TechCrunch and Forbes. I hope you enjoy this episode. Beyond 2%. We've covered a lot of topics already this season. Um, Parenthood was my favorite topic, selfishly, just because we recorded it about two months before I gave birth to my first baby, um, a baby girl. And Laura and Maya, uh, thank you. They were so much help, and I can relate so much more to the things that they said now that I'm on the other side of this as well. Um, But Shamir, I'd love to start with you on this front too. From 
the mom's perspective, you know, a lot of it just naturally falls on the mom, especially if you decide to breastfeed and all that kind of stuff. And I do feel like our country's gotten better about giving maternity leave. But something I didn't realize until I was on the other side and had a baby for myself is how much paternity leave really matters. Like the time it got hard for me is when my husband had to go back to work and I didn't have any help anymore. It's so much easier when you have someone else to kind of be like, all right, like you're going to watch the baby for the next two hours. I'm going to shower and like grab some lunch. Whereas when he's working, like I can't really ask him to help out on stuff like that. And I feel like there hasn't been as big of a push to offer paternity leave from both whether it's like a big tech company or, um, you know, a, a Fortune 500 traditional bank or something like that. But from your point of view, you've co-founded a couple of companies. You are a dad yourself. What are some of your thoughts here on where we've been successful in making lives easier for families and where there's still a lot of room to to grow? Like the whole concept of paternity leave. I, I feel like when I started my career 20 plus years ago, it, you barely heard the term, right? Uh, and and, and the, the whole kind of like expectation was that uh, women had the babies and men did the work. It was, it was still fairly kind of conventional patriarchal. As, as, I think the good news on that is especially I think over the last 10, 15 years, but especially I feel like in the last five, six years, paternity leave and, and the idea that, you know, men also not just uh, need, but also want to be involved in, uh, <laughs> in, in in their kids' lives, even from an early age, is, uh, I think that, that that's just more of an accepted thing now, right? Um, so we've had several folks take paternity leave just sort of think at uh, definitely at simple and as and at bbva and try to think at scylla uh i think we had not that many i think it's just because we're still has been a smaller company but it's just it's just not a thing anymore in the same way right like you're like oh so and so person is going on maternity leave or so and so person is going on paternity leave, whatever and i think it's that's that's one of the big things um I would still like to see some like national official like legal requirement to have both of these things. Actually, as far as I'm aware, there is none, right? So the, the industry standard has shifted, and it's it's a thing that you know folks in the tech industry. I think the, it's just become uh, table stakes now. If you don't have at least like six weeks of maternity and paternity leave, I'm like that's kind of I see like that's a minimum at this point. That's not true for the rest of the country. It's not true for all jobs, and I feel like. I've read somewhere that the U.S. is pretty much the last developed country not to have any official maternity leave requirements. Forget maternity leave, right? Um, I think where it gets really hard is when you're co-founder, C-level exec at a early stage startup, right? So my daughter was born about four weeks before we launched Simple back in 2012. We had a beta with like 300 customers, which was really just a prepaid card. And then we got the actual checking account with all the features we wanted live. And then we transitioned those beta customers to the new platform the day she was born, literally. And then ran that for four weeks to fix all the bugs and, and get it stable and then launched it, right? And, and I was the one working on the launch of that new platform. That was kind of my baby with the banks and everything else. So it was really hard. I mean, I officially took leave. I, I transitioned everything I could to our uh, COO, a guy called Adam Erlbacher. I don't know if you know him, Nick. Um, but, but, you know, it, he he took everything off my, my plate. But the, the hard part is to 
not be sitting in the in the hospital like checking your email <laughs> and i feel like i've i've seen this from both like you know uh like female founders and and and, uh, and and male founders where it's like hey listen you're in, in labor you should take you should put away the laptop or the phone <laughs> right and 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 it's just that the, that level of like involvement you get in your own startup it's just really really hard to separate yourself from it um what i have found at least for me personally is that the kid does that right as soon as you have a kid a, a little squirming little baby in your hand it's very very hard to be like let me go back to my <laughs> phone right it demands attention and it takes over your attention at least for the first 3 4 5 6 weeks i found that like it was very different pre baby and post baby right like post baby i was like look i'm going to actually put away the phone and the laptop and you know take care of the kid for you know whatever a couple of hours or or something and 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 that can totally immerse me <laughs> right uh, otherwise pre baby i'm like i'm sitting at dinner oh yeah this is supposed to be date night i'm still looking at my email <laughs> i'm i'm on the plane i'm doing email it, it was you know the, the the focus that the baby demands it's is i think it, it it's actually good i think it, to have some semblance of balance because especially early stage founding and even said i said mid stage is it can be like all consuming but it's not good if it is all no that was great and it's funny you bring up the aspect of like labor and still working because i remember uh, when laura speakerman of alloy was in labor she was wrapping up a post that i'd asked her to write for fintech today back in the day she was like oh i'm like going into labor but quick jotted this down for you i'm like go like birth the baby <laughs> like you're about to yes. do something really big <laughs> yes. um so that that was a perfect segue into that as well Um and she talked a little bit about on our episode as well as Maya Bittner who co-founded a company and now works at Shime who bought her company. Um just about how they kind of managed not completely checking out but very minimally checking in especially um you know after those first 4 to 6 weeks. They both technically took the maternity leave. I think Maya said something like I allow myself like half an hour of work stuff a day just answering some Slack messages and then like I'm done. um which i think is like a good balance for someone like that cuz it is hard to completely log out um helen we we brought up this topic with uh you know how this is in the US do you i'm not super familiar with what paternity leave looks like in the UK i know maternity leave is far better in the UK than what it is in the US but i haven't ever looked at paternity leave do you have any data on that or no no i was going to say i did have a look and it's pretty bad actually um men in the UK get 1 to 2 weeks however i think the wider thing like i can think of about the last company that i uh, worked at and men got the same amount of paternity uh, maternity or paternity as women and i think it was just under a year um like that. so i think you get 6 months i think you get a couple months before the baby and then the rest is for after um but i think the wider thing and i think we we brought it up in the first episode it's about families these days are not necessarily nuclear i mean a lot of families are but i think the problem may be with like maternity or paternity leave or or even like grandparent leave or, or or all these things is that people's families are just not necessarily set up in that nuclear way of like mum is sitting at home and dad is working um so i guess paternity leave maternity leave are, are both bad and maybe it's a question of like how do people separate it so um i guess a question i have for nick who 
from my understanding it's childless too but who knows <laughs> uh do, what do you think like, what do you think would be the best way to kind of share this out like if you had a child like how do you think would be a better way for us to kind of move forward in this that's a good question and i feel like as a as, as a person who does not yet have kids i'm not allowed to opine on anything to do with raising children um for good reason uh to me it's a weird anachronism that really important um, social programs like healthcare and like parental leave are tied to where you work and the type of job you have. Um, it's weird, you know, kind of prima facie that the place you choose to work can determine how much time you get to spend with your child when they're born. Um, it just feels like we need to have social standards um, about affordability and access to healthcare, and about ability for both parents to be active in the lives of their young kids um, that cut across all jobs and cut across all industries and, and all employers. Um, and that would be, if I could wave a wand, the, the first big thing that I would change. Um, there are stats that have come out post-pandemic about millennial dads and um, how much time they spend with their kids uh, versus Gen X dads and versus, um, you know, older generations of dads. And it's wild. Millennial dads spend so much more time with their children. Um, and I'm very hopeful that uh, a lot of the dynamics between dads and their kids um, that are, you know, conventional, um, where, you know, dads have a less involved relationship with their kids or, um, you know, aren't really viewed as the, the primary parent and caretaker and, um, you know, don't share in the emotional labor um, are changing with this generation. And I, I think probably like COVID and pandemic babies and lockdown babies were a big part of that. Um, you know, if, if the world was closed and there was nowhere else to go, you spent a lot more time with your kids. But I'm hoping that we retain um, as a culture uh, a lot of um that kind of sea change in in terms of uh, really even division of labor um, between men and women and parenting their kids. And that hopefully it has really positive benefits for the relationships of kids to their dads as well, because um, I think uh, a strong father figure in the household is is such a great way to make sure that you're going to create a better outcome for the kids growing up in that household. I think you make some really good points there. Um, when you're talking about kind of the like I, I think you're right, like the concept of men being involved in pe the parenting or upbringing of their children is, is more than it's ever been. And it's only going, growing and growing. And it actually reminded me of something you just were discussing about my glasses. Like before you guys were on the call, we were talking about Mad Men. I don't know if you've ever watched it, but you can even see like in that show, like I can't remember, it starts from what, the 60s or the 70s? And you can kind of see like um, Dawn Draper and his relationship with his child and like how, how from that generation to like the next generation it changes and like the responsibility it's needed and like, even if I think about my own family you can see how like per generation like responsibility or like what children need or what or what parents think that they're meant to provide does change um so I can definitely see that and I also think it's really interesting what you discussed about the kind of privilege I think in in, in a lot of careers where it's like tech driven and these types of things there is just more of a given of like people should have leave and x y and z um so i think those are really good points and i kind of want to circle to a second episode we had which was all around kind of bc um i think um so 
in this episode we discuss kind of like women in VC which is quite broad but obviously there is a lot when it comes to like where women are what needs to be done and I was wondering have I'll start with Nick have you noticed any change because I know you have a fun but like have you noticed any changes um or has it become easier for women to rise up the ranks when it comes to VCs? Um, I'll caveat this by saying I am very new to being an investor and I am, I guess I am professionally an investor, but I'm a very begrudging one. Um, I spent the first decade of my career building products and I really miss that product work. Kind of in the way that when you climb a mountain, you don't enjoy it in the moment, but you look back and you're like, oh, what a fun experience that was. I, I wish I could do that again. <laughs> Forgetting all the sweat and the tears and the pain. In that way, having kids is a bit like that too. <laughs> I, I actually think about that sometimes I'm like uh having kids seems like a great lesson in being a good manager and satisfying <laughs> irrational parties and taking multiple stakeholders into account um and sorry i'll, I'll come around about hell into your question because it's a good one but um i just so, so one episode that always stuck with me at a prior job i was in a leadership meeting it was a contentious meeting there were disagreements and the ceo um, was pretty direct and vocal to one of the um, team leads in the meeting um, about the disagreement that they had. And everybody follows out of the meeting afterwards and it's kind of awkward in the room. And I was sitting there with just the team lead afterwards and I said, I'm sorry, that, that was rough. Like, I don't think you deserved that harsh feedback. And the team lead said, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to see my two kids and they're going to tell me about what they learned in school that day. And none of the stuff that happened here is going to matter. And like that to me was really powerful it is this whole um, different part of the human experience that just makes you a more whole person and makes you a more fulfilled person with, with kind of more depth. And it, it really stuck out to me. And um, I think also gives you really good perspective when you are building a startup and going through challenges and, um, you know, facing drawbacks that there's more to life going on for you outside of work and, you know, uh, you can have bad days at work, but that's not your entire um, identity. And I think that that kind of perspective you can only really get by having kids. And it's really important. It makes you a better leader in startups. But that was kind of a very long tangent. Coming back to women in VC, I'm a new VC. Um, I've only been uh, deploying out of a fund for about a year and a half now and investing in early stage companies for about four years. And so, you know, don't take this as gospel, but it feels like the... Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement um, both brought a lot of attention to equity in the workplace. I think five years ago, most of us in venture didn't even understand what the concept of intersectionality was. And the kind of broadening of the Overton window and the awareness of these concepts, I think are going to have a long-term effect that's hard to see because we're still at the very beginning. And so if you look at representation of women um, within firms, and if you look at representation of women within the portfolios that those firms invest in, it's still pretty low. Like the, the name of the podcast, Beyond 2%, um, you know, reflects the fact that only 2% of venture, you know, over time was allocated to women founders. But now that we have more awareness of the inequities that exist here, why they're wrong, and importantly, like the very selfish opportunity that comes from hiring women and investing in women um, who tend to outperform against a lot of metrics. I think that you're going to see these attitudes create changes, um, but the changes aren't there yet. And we kind of need a new generation to come of age in the venture community um, to really prioritize this alongside everything else that venture is traditionally prioritized. 
Shamir, turning that question to you, you're not a VC, but I would assume that you have invested in companies as an angel before, or you might be an LP in a fund. Talk to me a little bit about when you were thinking about starting to do that, did you assume that there was like this high barrier to entry or anything? Because when we did our episode on that, we felt that women assumed that, you know, I don't have enough money to be an Alpina fund or to be an angel investor, or, you know, I just don't know enough about that. I'm not even going to try to learn about it, where I feel like men assume the opposite and are willing to take that risk. Talk to me a little about how you thought about that the first time you did either of those things. Funnily enough, the first time I did angel investing was back in 2011. Uh, I did them the same month and one of them basically returned like 2x and the other uh, returned 300x. Um, so I, 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 was, I was very, very successful um, with, with both of those. So I'd been married for a few years and uh, my wife had a job as well. And she'd structured her job working as a consultant for the World Bank so she could work remotely back then, like 15 years ago. And then just followed me around the world as I went and worked in first Pittsburgh, then in Brussels, and then in New York. She just had a bunch of money sitting in an account in Europe. And we were trying to figure out what to do with it. And because we'd already moved back to the US, uh, this was like 18 months after we'd moved back to the US. And we were like, can't just leave this European account hanging around with, you know, whatever, 40K in it. <laughs> uh, should we should we convert it? And then we got this uh, opportunity to invest in these two crazy Estonians who wanted to start up a money transfer business. And we were like, yeah, man, transferring money is such a massive problem. Uh, let's write them a check, right? And then one of my, my buddies in, in Pittsburgh as well. It was quote unquote her money <laughs> that we were bringing back from Europe. And we were like, we just invest it. And some of it went just from like an accountant an account in Belgium to an account in, in London to invest in what became wise. And, and yeah, so I'm like, the, the reason I had the money to make those <laughs> early angel investments is because my wife's a good saver. Uh, and, and so, you know, without her, that wouldn't have been possible, right? Um, but I do think you're completely right in that I feel like my question making those investments was like, could I legally say that I was accredited? And the answer was yes, because I was sitting on a huge pile of highly illiquid, simple stock that was theoretically worth enough to make me accredited. But I definitely did not have <laughs> the the income, and I definitely did not have the, the the cash to be to be accredited. My wife had cash, and so we were able to make those investments, and it worked out uh, fine. It worked out worked out great for us. I, I feel like you're completely right that a lot of the time women just assume that they can't do those things also have a lot more hesitation the the, uh, the what's the saying that like you know fools rush in where angels fear to tread <laughs> uh, I feel like a lot of the time men are like that we're like okay that seems like a good idea let's go ahead and do it and and we'll do it until somebody tells me that you can't do it <laughs> and then I'll ask why right much of the time when I've when I'm talking to like women entrepreneurs I've invested in or, or worked with or whatever I'm like yeah just do it like, is anybody telling you you can't do that? No, then just do it. Like, why? You don't need my permission to do that, right? and you don't need anybody's permission. And and uh, just, it's amazing to me how many people in this industry have no freaking clue about how the industry works, how anything works, and and especially in the early days when we were launching Simple, I would have to explain to VCs that this is how a bank works. It takes money from depositors and it lends the money out and it makes money from net interest margin and non-interest income. And I'm like, 
<laughs> there was a slide in my pitch deck about like how banks function because nobody in in silicon valley understood that and after last week's events i wonder if that's still true but yeah i feel there's definitely an element of like you know kind of the just go do it <laughs> which which i i think it's just a sort of like a culturation that you know men just instinctively go do it while women instinctively ask if they can go to it <laughs> yeah i'm not sure how we fix that yeah i think it's a t it's almost just like ingrained in our i guess like as parents and you know you, you said you have a daughter i have a daughter i guess trying to ingrain into them that they can just go do things within reason <laughs> um but I, I i think maybe that's it just kind of trying to teach the next generation that you know they they are capable of just as many things as other genders and whatnot Absolutely. um maybe that's it and, and talking about acculturation i'm like th th this it, and this is like still like a thing for me that you know growing up in india in the 90s uh every now and then there'd be a newspaper article about this boy who in the you know everything is about like state or national level exams that you write at the 10th and 12th grade and there's this boy who came in second in the state level exam and and, and the article was about the boy and it was written because he was a boy because that was unusual like the top 20 ranks in all the exams were always girls right so the idea that men as that women can't do math is really weird for me i mean if you growing up in india i would assume that men can't do math right and that women are naturally better at math than men are so i come to the us and then women can't do math i'm like are women just different? Like, is the are we that genetically different in India versus the US? No, it's just it's just, just all bullshit. It's just like the culture says the women can't do math, so women grow up thinking they can't do math. Women can do math just as well as men. Honestly, I might be better, <laughs> given given the like the right society and uh, the and and the kind of the 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 incentives. They might be, actually be better than men at math. Um, so yeah, I think Larry Summers who. <clears throat> was president of Harvard and uh, Shamir, what was his role in the government? Was secretary of the treasury? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. For a while then, under, was it under Clinton? Yeah, yeah, under Clinton. Um, had a big scandal in his career where he effectively said that, um, you know, in his capacity at Harvard. Yeah, that's just, I mean, that is just such total bullshit. It, it, it just pisses me off. Cause I'm like, look, do you just look outside or person look outside the US and, most other parts of the world, you'll find it's it's almost the other end where, you know, teenage girls are just a lot more uh, focused on studying and working hard, at least in India, on average. I think that's the point. Like, you know, before you were saying um, men don't do it and women ask permission. Like, personally, I, I wouldn't necessarily, I don't necessarily agree with that. Like, I wouldn't say, like, it's that I ask permission. I think it's just more, I, I probably think about things. Like, if I compare myself to, like, something my brother would do and something I would do I would just think about it more and before I've even like decided he's already like made a stupid decision probably <laughs> do you know what I mean I just think it's more about like I don't necessarily think it's about asking permission I think it's generally just like I'm probably just still thinking about whether I want to do it even if I do think it's a good decision or a bad decision but I think that's a really good turn to like ask a question I have to both of you so we've talked about a lot of different topics. We've talked about parenthood. We've talked about VCs. We've talked about angel investing. We've talked about maths. Um, and so, like, how do you kind of, you know, like, 
my identity, I guess, is like I'm a black woman and I'm British and I'm Nigerian and all these things like make up my identity. And I guess with you guys and your identity, I think often with men, it's not as, you know, all the different like elements of their intersection, intersectionalness isn't as clear. So how do you kind of bring what you see as like important to who you are and your identities to work? Or do you think it's important that we, that these things are, are known? Because if you're a woman and you go to work, everybody knows you're a woman. And so these, the, your identity kind of affects how you're treated, what you say, perhaps how much you think or, or don't think or perceptions of whether people can think you do maths. So like, how do you bring your, or do you bring your identity or do you think that's like an important element that people need within the workplace or like within like businesses? Um, I'll start with Nick. You know, I, I'm white and I'm a guy and I am straight. And so for the first, I would say like 25 years of my career, um, I was very blissfully ignorant that um, identity played such a large role in your perception of um, how to move through the world um, and how you're viewed in the workforce. Uh, and over the last, you know, seven or eight years, as identity has become a much bigger uh, part of social discourse, uh, it really opened my eyes to the impact on lived experience that identity plays for people in the workplace um, in a way that, you know, I had only been maybe partially aware of before. I just, I always figured if I treated everybody like a professional and with respect and everybody treated me that way, that we were all, um, you know, on equal footing. And, and I, you know, took very much for granted that the reason I felt that way is because I never felt like I was really um, fighting an uphill battle to be taken seriously the way that other people um, feel, you know, by default. Uh, and it makes you realize that so much of this, as Shamir said, is socialized. Um, it's entirely dependent on the community, the society that you find yourself in and whatever the kind of preconceived norms that society are and battling against them to actually create that equity um, within the workplace. So um, for me, identity was not really a big part of um, how I thought about my role in the working world for a long time. Uh, you know, I was young and I was naive and those were pieces of my identity and growing up, you know, being a, a child of Serbian immigrants and, um, you know, the, the civil war was a piece of my identity, but it's one that I kind of tried to compartmentalize and not really, uh, bring to the, to the workforce. Um, it's something that has made me gain a lot of respect for Gen Z, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a millennial, but really uh, emotionally, I'm more of a boomer, honestly. I'm just a cranky old man most of the time. Um, but I love a lot about Gen Z. Um, and, you know, every generation has their own problems. But what Gen Z has been really good at is kind of breaking down that barrier between who you are outside of work and who you are inside of work. And it's something that I respect a lot. For the first 10 or 12 years of my career, I really felt like I needed to compartmentalize those things. And where I was outside of work, um, you know, inside of work, I was this 100% professional who just cared about what we were working on. And, um, you know, I didn't really bring my whole self to work. Now, because of Gen Z kind of pushing the envelope and, um, you know, making identity a uh, more active component of who you are and how you interact with people in the workforce, I feel more comfortable as a result, even though I, you know, never had any pressure on my identity. Even as a, single, as a straight white guy, I feel more comfortable being my whole self at work. And I think a big part of that is thanks to the people who fought to create awareness of, of the way that identity shapes our experience in the working world. 
Um, and so it, it went from, you know, being something that I almost never thought about because I was in a position where I didn't have to think about it. I was in this very fortunate, you know, genetic lottery position of it not impacting me negatively um, to being something that I have a lot more respect for. And now when I interact with people, you know, in the back of my mind, I pay a lot more attention to the fact that our backgrounds will shape how we perceive effectively the same situations um, in different contexts. I think that's a great answer and thanks for sharing. It's, it's so interesting because I, I grew up in London and so like actually growing up, things like my race, well maybe gender in school because my school's crazy, but like race for instance wasn't actually a thing that people like was like interesting in school because the kind of school I went to everybody had like five different identities anyway so it was like what we what we talking about like we're all immigrants so it wasn't really that interesting it was only really when I went started when I went to university and I like moved outside of London and went somewhere more whiter uh, that I interacted with people who'd ne never met black people or something and I was just and, I, and doing that in England that was like wait what and then you know, as I worked, then, you know, these things became way more exacerbated, like race and gender and these types of things. But I came in with, like, quite a naive perception, like, of racial issues and stuff, just because London is just, everyone has, like, something. So it's quite interesting, actually, as I got older, you start to see these things. Um, but you're right, like, I do feel like it's changing more positively, because when I go to the workplace, I can't really hide my race and gender. So you end up having to have these conversations and it's really great that people are able to talk about it. I think Americans, I think that that's such an interesting point and Americans like generally don't understand that like in most parts of the world when people ask for your identity, like you just say your nationality, like that is like really your identity. Like people are like, what race are you? And other people say, I'm Swedish. What race are you? I'm Serbian. And it, it, you know, things aren't necessarily perceived. Identity is not necessarily just or is not first a racial construct in so many parts of the world where it's like, you have this like very complex background and there's very many different pieces of your identity. Um, and in, in the US it's, it's, I can treat it a little bit differently. I went to an international school growing up too. And I mean, everybody ripped on everybody else all the time. And it was just kind of like um, friendly joking about different identities and backgrounds in, in ways that, you know, out of context would be like, cancelable immediately but it's the fact that everybody was from somewhere else like nobody was like the set identity or like the national identity everybody had some kind of different background and it was uh really interesting to kind of be in that that hodgepodge because everybody brought something different to their perspectives um and and i i you know hope that as a society we're moving towards a place where more people are just valued and celebrated for having different identities and backgrounds and perspectives in a way that they can bring um you know different points to to the conversation no, I, I completely agree with you. I, I would say, like, if, if someone said, where are you from? I probably would just say London. I probably would not say England or Britain, because I don't know those people. Like, I don't know England. I, I only have really lived in London, and London is not England. It's very, very different. So I have probably more in common with someone who lives in a bigger city like New York than I do with someone who lives in, like, Yorkshire. Do you know what I mean? So I don't really relate to the concept. Well, obviously I live here but like do you know what I mean like, I relate to London it's what I know it's where I feel comfortable and there are yeah I can go out of London and go to somewhere in the countryside and not feel comfortable so it is a really weird thing like you, you like of course I am British but I'm I'm a Londoner um Shamir <laughs> what are your thoughts on this like in terms of the identity because I know you grew up in India and now you live in America like it is a very different world um and in just listening to you talk, right? Like when people ask me where I'm from, I say I'm from India. And most people in the West 
will just accept that and accept Indian as an identity. What most people in the West don't realize is when you say India, that's a population of people that is about the same size as Africa, right? So if somebody said, I'm African, you'd probably say, yeah, but where in Africa, <laughs> right? I mean, like, are you, are you Moroccan or are you Angolan, right? And those are very, very, very different. Just about the same level of diversity exists within India, right? There's like 16 official languages in which the government does business. There's like 300 languages with multiple language families. There's over a thousand dialects, uh, pretty much every religion on the planet. And, and honestly, people who look so white that they would fit in in Sweden to people who look so dark skinned that they would fit in in, you know, any part of Africa. Right. And I'm kind of in between, which is where a lot of people are. <laughs> uh, and historically in India, like your identity wasn't defined by your race. That wasn't that race is a very Western construct. Your identity was defined by your religion, A, and your caste. And, and to some extent by your kind of your hometown, right? Uh, because there is a, there's an intersection of all of these things, like which religion, obviously, but then also like if you're Hindu and then you're from a particular caste, but you're, that caste might actually have people who are living in multiple states and actually can be speaking different languages even, right? And there's even more finer grained concepts of like Gotras and, and Jatas and, and there's like sub-castes and sub-communities. And it's, it's, it's 1.4 billion people and we've been around for a while. So we, you know, we, we've built some crazy constructs, right? And, and all of that is completely alien to most people in the West. And up until 200 years ago, the, you know, the uh, concept of race would have been fairly alien to India and and people dark skinned people from the south very much looked down and actually still look down on those uncouth fair skinned northerners right <laughs> and and for me kind of growing up my my dad was Muslim my mom was Hindu and they were both pretty agnostic in actual like religion religious spaces they were just born Muslim and Hindu and so I got to see both sides of it and I've kind of always been I guess intersectional. <laughs> Right. Even growing up in school, I was like, there were a couple of Muslim kids, there were a lot of Hindu kids, and they we all got along with each other fine, at least in the small school that I went to. I could go hang out with either group and fit in with both, right? And and uh, and sort of floated between them. Race was never really a thing. I never felt discriminated against until I came to the US, right? The first night I landed in the US, I almost got into a, a fight over uh, racist stuff, which which has only happened like twice in 20 years, but the first time was the night I landed in the US. So it was a weird introduction. The, the thing about the US is that in many ways, it's similar to India in terms of like the massive amount of like diversity. It's all in the US, it's all because pretty much everybody's an immigrant. You know, there's not that much Native Americans left, sadly. In India, the, the, the diversity has been there for like 2000 plus years. And we have built all of these complex systems to pigeonhole people and keep them in their place. The history of India will tell you that they've, that's not really ever worked, only for a few short periods of time here and there. And I think the US keeps trying to like rebuild its own ways of like categorizing people, but then keeps breaking down, right? Like. 150 years ago, it wasn't about white versus blacks. It was about like the those newfangled Irish immigrants. Uh, if you've seen gangs of New York, just like now everybody uh, understands that if you have Italian 
ancestry, you're white. Uh, that wasn't the case in the 1920s, right? Like Italians were a separate, whole separate group of, of immigrants who were distinctly below the white majority in terms of like their place in society, right? So I, I really don't know where the US goes with all of this. I feel like it's in some ways, uh, it's up to us to define that, right? Yeah, that's an interesting thing to bring up too, because I remember there was um, a Peloton class I took a week or two ago where Jessica Sims taught it and she's half black, half white. And she's like, I remember in grade school, you could only pick black or white. Like there was no option for both. And that's something just me as a white female, I would have never thought about before, but it's just little things like that. Yeah, I mean, the same thing is, is um, you know, it's a, it's the national dialogue um, on gender and sexuality now too is, over time, we're discovering more about ourselves. We're discovering more about identity. And, um, you know, all of us grew up in a time when it was assumed that there were two genders. And now, you know, we're learning and we've learned that that paradigm is not the case. In the same way, Shamir, I'm, I'm uh, really resonated with what you were saying um, because the, the author, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, has this good book, Between the World and Me. And I remember reading it on a, on a plane like 10 years ago and, I had heard the phrase, you know, race is a social construct before, but it, I never understood what it meant. Um, I didn't really look into it. Um, but he broke down the same thing that if you look at um, censuses from the early 2000s, that Black Irish and Italian are considered their own racial subcategory um, and like very intentionally set apart from white people. And so what to me that means isn't like, it doesn't mean, let, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that race doesn't exist. Race exists. It doesn't mean that we are making things up as we go along. It means that we're learning more and more as we evolve as a society. And that's, we're never going to get to like one set place where it's like, okay, these are the right categories. And everybody is one of these genders and everybody is one of these races and everybody, you know, is one of these sexualities. It's the more we progress and the more we create a society in which people feel comfortable expressing themselves, the more we'll learn that there are these big subcategories um, that we didn't really pay attention to or believe existed before. And there will always be this generational conflict where the older generation is like, you know, things were fine just the way they were. And the younger generation says, no, we're not going to take the world for granted that you gave us. We're going to push things forward. And so for me, like, I think just the same way as you approach a startup, take all the information in and understand, you know, what useful signal you can learn from that. When I think about intersectionality and when I think about gender identity and um, kind of the construct of race as it's evolving, you know, my perspective is listen to what everybody has to say and take people who talk about their lived experiences at face value and be willing to depart from some of the things that you grew up knowing as fundamental truths because the world changes and your only choice is to change with it or to resist that change. And we all know that resisting that change is not a, is not a long-term strategy. You, you would think that, but I feel like there's, the, there's, there's people who resist the change and, and resist it hard. I mean, we keep seeing fascism come back, right? You're like, did we just defeat it for barely, what, like 75, 80 years ago? And and it feels like it's back and, and not as powerful as it was, but, but you know, not gone. And... Uh, and, and I feel like it's almost as if at least some humans have this, this need to create in-groups and out-groups and say, I'm part of this in-group and we are better than you and you, and, and then we need to like take over and run things as, as part of the in-group. And it almost doesn't matter whether the in-group is defined by race or by religion 
or by birthplace location or, or by something completely different like cost it's so hard to even define what that means but it doesn't matter because it's very real once it's defined and once people accept that they are part of the in group then they they can start working together to exclude the people from the out group right and i'm like that's the the thing that we need to kind of eliminate is that hey you know there are no in groups and out groups but they keep rearing their ugly heads in different different ways yeah i think you both make some really really interesting points and shamir i i do relate in the sense of i mean nigeria we don't have caste but we do have tribes and uh if someone saw my name for instance and they were nigerian they would know and i would know from their name and <laughs> it sounds weird but i feel like i can also kind of just tell from the vibe but that just i think that's racist <laughs> i don't know it isn't but it is also true right like in in the us they just say asians or east asians right but i lived in japan for a while and after that i can with like i used to and i'm not sure i haven't tried recently but when i was in japan with like close to 80% confidence i could look at somebody and say you're chinese you're korean and you're japanese um and you are you are none of these three things so you're probably vietnamese taiwanese or something else right and i'm like uh, th- there is something that and i think it's easier than it's like people who have just been in that in those very old societies and or in tribes for the same like uh society for a long time yeah i i think i think with like for instance nigeria like most nigerians are you that people meet are either yoruba or ibo but like there are like 330 tribes in nigeria just most from the diaspora happen to be from like two or three of the main ones and there are like 300 languages spoken there I speak one of them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um so there is that level of diversity um wherever you go and I think intersectionality kind of does bring that because it's like you're right for example is part of my identity but like on a daily basis for instance it's kind of not it's only when I'm in a certain crowd or group or I have to speak the language or something speak have to because it's, it's so weird I always reply in English even though I can understand I don't know why that is I'm such a I don't know what you call it terrible diaspora person um but yeah i think that's a really good place to kind of wrap it up because i think i think it's a really i think you can take all these identities and like you said to me you can look at them and use them to kind of bring in fascism and all these things but you can also take them and all these different identities and the way we're learning to kind of educate ourselves like you've talked to us today for instance about all the different like that all the different diversity in india so as much as people use that as a way of promoting fascism i would say like 20 other people are using it to actually educate themselves on something that they didn't know or be like okay if i now now that we travel more just as a society like i could go to india and learn these things i mean maybe i'm just being very optimistic pessimistic but i think in terms of like intersectionality and like what it teaches us i think it is just about kind of learning from other people's identities and seeing where people are coming from as nick put it so beautifully Thanks guys, thanks for coming on. <laughs>